At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament now to the book of Esther. The book of Esther in the Old Testament. Some of you might be thinking, well, I know it's there, but I'm not quite sure where to find it. Well, I just want to remind you that in the Old Testament, in the front section, really, of the Old Testament, you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, then you have Ezra, then you have Nehemiah, and then you have the book of Esther. So you can find it, the book of Esther, which is going to be our series we're going to be studying over the next five Sundays, this Sunday including four more, which we have entitled Providence. Now, I know many of you are fans of movies, and one of the themes, popular themes of movies in recent times has been the theme of time travel. So think about a movie that you like that had time travel in it. Some of you might think to the classic movie, Back to the Future. And in Back to the Future, there's time travel where they go back 30 years from 1985 to 1955. Some of you might think, well, you know, the movie I liked even more than that was the movie Men in Black 3. Because in Men in Black 3, they go back in time, backward time travel, 43 years, back to the year 1969. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but this whole idea of time travel became popular in 1895. Yeah, that was before there were moving pictures, as I used to call them, you know, before there were movies. And in 1895, a guy by the name of H.G. Wells wrote a book called The Time Machine. And in that book, written in 1895, they go back in time 1,000 years. Well, in this series with the book of Esther, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back in time 2,500 years, 25 centuries. And some of you may be thinking, well, if we're going to go back 2,500 years, 25 centuries, I mean, what are we really going to be able to learn from traveling back in time like that? And there's a very delicious verse in the New Testament. It's one of my favorite verses. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when I have the opportunity to teach the story of Scripture, part number one, which is the survey of the Old Testament with Jeff Harwell at the Bible Institute, always make sure we look at this verse, this delicious verse. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul is writing to the believers in the church at Corinth And he says, now these things happen to them. What's he referring to? He's referring to some of the events of the Old Testament. And he's saying these things that have been recorded in the Old Testament happen to them as an example. In verse 6, he says, it's an example for us, for you and for me. And then he has this key phrase, and they were written for our instruction. Now, I want you to look at that last phrase for just a moment. They were written for our instruction. 
That's why there is high value in traveling back in time 2,500 years ago to the book of Esther. It's because there are lessons that we need to learn. There's timeless truth embedded in the Old Testament. There are life lessons that God designed for you and for me in the Old Testament. They were written, it says, for our instruction, and that's why they have high value. And that's why we're going to spend five weeks looking at the book of Esther, which we have entitled Providence. Now, the book of Esther is a very fascinating book. It's extremely fascinating, and Esther is fascinating for several different reasons. The first reason I want to cite is this. Esther is fascinating because it is the world's first melodrama. And you might be thinking, well, okay, I've heard the word. I'm not really sure what a melodrama is. Well, let me tell you what a melodrama is. A melodrama is a sensational story marked by virtuous heroes and conniving villains. That's a melodrama. In a melodrama, there are surprising plot twists and turns. In a melodrama, there's these high emotional ups and downs. And Esther is the world's first melodrama. You know, there was a cartoon melodrama back in the 60s that had some interesting character names in that melodrama. The one that always stood out the most to me was the conniving villain, Snidely Whiplash. I just always loved that name. It so captured the essence of a conniving villain, Snidely Whiplash. You know, uh, the word snide can mean tricky, And whiplash is what you get when someone is a conniving villain and there's all these turns of events that happen. So you had snidely whiplash in that cartoon melodrama in the 60s. Then you also had Sweet Nell. Sweet Nell was the one who was the target of a lot of the conniving of snidely whiplash. And then the third key repeating character they had in that melodrama in the 60s was Dudley Do-Right. And Dudley Do-Right was really the hero, sometimes the reluctant hero in that melodrama. Well, what makes Esther so fascinating, it's the world's first melodrama, the very first one. And it arrived on the scene some 2,500 years ago. It's a fascinating book. There's another reason why Esther is so fascinating is that it's one of two Old Testament books that features a central female character And the book is named after that central female character. And the other book would be the book of, I can't hear you, what? The book of Ruth, exactly. The book of Ruth, the book of Esther, central female character, and the book is named after that central female character. The book of Ruth is an illustration of God's redemption. The book of Esther is an illustration of God's Providence, which is why we've entitled the series Providence. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the book of Esther. We're going to see God's providence seen over and over again. Now, as you look at the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, it underscores something. It tells us how much God honors women. That's why he has books with central female characters, and he names the books after them. And it's kind of interesting, if you look at them, Ruth is a 
poor peasant. She's sort of on the far end of the spectrum of women. Esther is a beauty queen who actually becomes queen. And I think it's not an accident that you have those two extremes. And what's really, the message God is trying to communicate is, is he really honors women, whether they're on this end of the spectrum or that end of the spectrum or anywhere in between. So it becomes a very fascinating book due to that fact. It's interesting, Ruth is a non-Jew who God providentially incorporates into the very genealogy of the Messiah and the Savior. Esther is a Jew who God providentially uses to save the nation and the lineage line so that a Savior could be born. Esther is a fascinating, fascinating book. There's another reason why Esther is a fascinating book, and that is that as you look at the book, there is no mention in the book of the name of God. There are no quotes in the book of Esther from the Old Testament scriptures. Esther is never quoted in the New Testament. As you work through the book, you see no open devotion to God. You see no illustration of prayer, although you do see mourning and fasting in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. No, those things being absent from the book, as you look back over history, it caused some to have some strong reservations about the book of Esther. Does this book really belong in the canon of Scripture? It's a legitimate question to ask. And yet, while none of those things are present in the book, and while God is not mentioned by name, we're going to see that the living God is actually a key player in this book. We're going to see his providence at work behind the scenes throughout the book as the melodrama unfolds. It's really not much different than today. You know, we live in a culture and a world where God is not openly acknowledged very much anymore. But that doesn't mean he's not here and he's not at work. He's always at work, always honoring and being faithful to his promises. He's always accomplishing his purposes, whether he's openly acknowledged or not. Now, as we come together in this just introduction to the book of Esther, we want to look at four different things today. We're going to examine four things. First of all, I want to set a little historical background for the book, because there's some interesting history that parallels the events of this book. Then I want to introduce you to the key characters of the book, because I'm going to be encouraging you to read through the book of Esther. I want to share with you an outline of the book of Esther so you can maybe understand the flow of the book as you read it. And then I want to take a few minutes to talk about the theme of providence, which is the title we have given to the book. Providence, Insights from the Life of Esther in the book of Esther. So does that sound like a decent plan to do that? Everyone up for that? Anyone opposed? No. Not at all. Let's start off with historical background, right? Let's look at historical background. If you have your Bible open to the book of Esther, I want to read the first couple verses. So Esther chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne which was at the citadel in Susa. 
In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all people. We'll take a closer look at that next time. We're going to just stop right there. And I want to just give us a little historical background. Notice he, he says, the events of the book of Esther occur in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces. Now, that's all the information historically that we need. We know exactly who this guy was. In fact, he was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. He has a Greek name, which is the name Xerxes. And he also has a Persian name, which is Kishayarsh. And we know exactly when he ruled, because we have enough history background to tell us that. He ruled Ahasuerus from 486 B.C. to 464 B.C., a time period of some 22 years. Now, think about it, you mathematicians, tune in. He began to rule in 486, right? Verse 2 tells us, or rather verse 3 tells us, that the events that opened the story of Esther occurred in the third year of his reign, right? So if it's the third year of his reign, he started reigning in 486, he, that means the events beginning this are in what year? 483. Your razor's sharp today. Begins in the third year of his reign in 483. Now, all this is going to have some ramifications as we look at things more next time. What's interesting is about Ahasuerus, and by the way, kings in that time had to be very careful about the people they put around them. Remember how Nehemiah becomes the cupbearer, or Artaxerxes, which means he tests everything because you don't want anybody to poison the king? Well, Ahasuerus ends up being assassinated by a guy by the name of Artabanus, who was the captain of his royal bodyguard. You know, the guy you would think would be in charge of the secret service who's going to protect you. He's the one um, who actually kills Ahasuerus. So 19 years after the story opens, he's going to die. But God's going to be at work before that happens. You know, in verse 2, it talks about Ahasuerus sitting on his royal throne, which is in the citadel in Susa. Susa was located in southwestern Iran. And it's actually been renamed today. It's called Shush. It's the word hush in English with an S in front of it. So you can go to southwestern Iran and go to the city of Shush, and it is really the city of Susa. And uh, what's really interesting historically to me you know, the Old Testament is not put together totally chronologically. Some things are in here out of chronology. And when we, when we see this history of Esther, it is some of the latest history of the Old Testament. Because, you know, after the Old Testament is finished, there's 400 silent years, four centuries, God doesn't say one word. And then you have the advent of the New Testament. So the events, even though they're not at the end of the, the Old Testament book in terms of organization, the actual history is fairly late. That's why we know so much about this guy, Ahasuerus. In fact, the only parts of the Old Testament that are later history would be the last part of the book of Ezra, chapters 7 to 10. The only other later history than what we have here is Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, as I said, to Artaxerxes. You know who Artaxerxes is? He's the son of Xerxes. He's the son of Ahasuerus. So this goes right in front of, historically, 
the book of Nehemiah. And then the only other part that's later history is the book of Malachi. So you see, historically, this book actually fits more toward the end of the Old Testament rather than maybe in the front third. And what's also interesting historically is that during the events of this book, this melodrama that God is doing, two prominent world leaders die. You'll recognize their names. One who died was Confucius, who lived in China. And during this time of the events of the book of Esther, Buddha, who lived in Nepal, India area, also died. Now, you know, when you have the news media and they're covering all the events around the world and significant world figures die, they're going to cover that. So if you kind of picture at this time in this era that the news reporting, the big news would have been Confucius died. Buddha died. But those weren't the significant events of the day. No, the significant events of the day were happening in Susa. God was providentially at work in Susa. So that's just a little bit of historical background. The second thing we're going to do is we simply want to introduce to you quickly the key characters in the story. So as you read through it, you'll have already a little awareness of who they are. The first one we've been already examining, and that is Ahasuerus. And you know a little bit about him and how long he lived and how long he reigned and who killed him eventually. But I want to give you just a little insight into who he was as a person. Ahasuerus was an extremely prideful guy, not unlike many of the rulers of the empire, the secular empires of the world. They have done a number of excavations, and they have found some inscriptions that he declared should be written about him. I'll give you one of these descriptions written about him. King of kings. Sound familiar? That's what Ahasuerus said. You want to know who I am? I am the king of kings. Another inscription that he had written about himself is this one, the king of this great earth. It is a great earth. I'm king. He's a very prideful guy. But interestingly enough, like a lot of boastful people, he was easily influenceable. I think he knew on the inside he wasn't as great as he thought he was wanting to be portrayed. And we're going to see later on in a character we're going to meet in just a moment, he has a huge impact and influence on Ahasuerus. One other uh, attribute of Ahasuerus is he was very impetuous. You know, someone who's impetuous just acts like this without really thinking. And we're going to see events in chapter 1 and chapter 3 that underscore how impetuous Ahasuerus was. So he's our first key character. Second key character, which we will see in chapter 1 later, is Vashti, and I like to call her queen number one. Uh, She was Ahasuerus' queen, but then she gets demoted and replaced. Third character I want us to note in the story of the book of Esther, if you have your Bible open, turn to chapter 2 and verse 5. The third character we're going to see is the character Mordecai. And he surfaces there in verse 5. says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai. And he was the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish. He was a Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 6, He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem 
with the captives who've been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. You remember that the Babylonian empire came first. Nebuchadnezzar came and took a number of people in several waves back to the area of the Babylonian empire. But the Babylonian empire was overthrown by the Medo-Persian empire. And so this character Mordecai was one of those taken from Jerusalem dumped in Babylonia, which was now the Medo-Persian Empire, the Jew taken into exile. And we're going to see God providentially at work in the events of his life. It's going to be exciting. The next character we want to meet is the character of Esther herself. We see her first appearing in verse 7 of chapter 2. And notice it's speaking of Mordecai, and it says, he was bringing up Hadassah. He was raising Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Esther was her Persian name. The word Esther in Persian means star. It's kind of interesting because she is indeed the star of the whole book. Hadassah was her Hebrew name. And Esther is the younger cousin to Mordecai. And Mordecai adopts her after her parents had died. So when you look at the person of Esther, she didn't come from this wonderful background. Her life began in a very crushing way when she was young. And her mom and her dad died. And her cousin, Mordecai, said, I'll take her and I'll raise her. And even though she had that crushing life, yet God was still providentially at work in everything that was happening. The last character I want to introduce you to is Haman, and he first appears in chapter 3, verse 1. Haman is snidely whiplash. He's snidely whiplash to the max. And Haman is a hater of the Jews. And Haman is a plotter, and Haman is a schemer, and he is a conniver. And he's somebody who is very wealthy, he's very influential, and as the story of the book unfolds, he eventually becomes promoted by Ahasuerus to number two in the kingdom, right underneath the king himself. So those are our key characters. Now, as I said, the third thing we wanted to do is we wanted to share with you a little bit of an outline of the book. So as you are reading through the book, you'll have a sense of its flow. And so we've broken the book, if you look, into seven sections. It begins with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which is somewhat what we've looked at today. And then we see God's providential preparation in chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 23. And then thirdly, we're going to see Haman's heinous plot in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 3. And then we're going to see Esther's courageous intervention in chapter 4, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 10. And then you have the Jews' marvelous deliverance in chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 17. And then we have the establishment of remembrance in chapter 9, verse 18, through chapter 9, verse 32. And then we have an epilogue in chapter 10, verses 1 
through 3. So you can use that as you're reading through the book just to have a sense of the flow and where it's going. Now, when we mention there the establishment of remembrance, it's talking about a memorial feast that gets established during the story of Esther. And it is a memorial feast that is continued on 2,500 years. It's still being observed to this very day. It's called the Feast of Purim. And we'll learn a little bit more about that when we move to that section of the book. All right? So that's the outline of the book. The fourth thing we said that we were going to take a look at was the theme of providence in the book. We've entitled the book Providence because we see this principle all through the book. And by the way, the idea of God's providence is a principle that is taught throughout the scriptures. And we could probably spend 20 minutes listing the various verses from the Old and the New Testament that stress the idea of the providence of God. But I just simply want to give a couple of them to you today, all right? It's a principle clearly taught in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. First verse is from Psalm 103, verse 19. It says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over most of the things that happen in everyday life. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty, his providence, rules over all things that happen. God never gets edged off of the throne. He reigns forever. Another passage out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. This is God speaking himself. He says, declaring the end from the beginning... My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God's providence is always at work. And then we could come to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, just one illustration of this. It says there that God works how many things? All things after the counsel of his will. Does anything in life ever get out of his control? He works all things after the counsel of his will. His providence is always at work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, another verse that stresses the providence of God, says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's providence is always operating always operating. You might say, okay, Bruce, I've seen a few verses, so I know we could look at a lot more, but what do we really mean when we say providence? You know, how would we define providence? How would we describe God's providence? And one of the things I did as I've been studying this over the last couple of months is I went to all my theology books, all my systematics, And I looked up the providence of God, and I was just observing how it was defined. And I want to share a few of them with you this morning. What is the providence of God? Well, Henry Thiessen wrote this. He said, the providence of God is the continuous activity of God, whereby he makes all events 
work out his purposes. You know, all events would include some good events and some bad events, but God's providence is the continuous activity of God whereby he moves, or rather makes all events work out his purposes. Another one I want to share with you, another little definition and description comes from John MacArthur and Dick Mayhew in their theology. They say that the providence is God's operating in every event in the world and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. Are there some events in the world that cause us consternation? Yeah. I mean, sometimes individually, personally in my life, there are events that cause me consternation. Sometimes they're just national events that are going on in our country. Maybe you're feeling some of that. Maybe it's an international event that's happening that causes consternation. But God's providence can be very comforting to us in the midst of all of that because it is God's operating in every event in the world and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. Another description and definition of providence I want to share with you comes from J. Vernon McGee. Uh, He's a very practical, down-to-earth guy. He says this, Providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. Now, I want you to look at that one again. Providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. Is that your daily perspective? As things happen, that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. That's what the providence of God means. I've given some of my own definition to providence. I I say this, providence means God is behind the scene. Not S-C-E-N-E, but S-E-E-N. It means that his fingerprints are everywhere. Even when people don't seek him or don't acknowledge his presence, as we see some in the book of Esther, even among the Jews, his fingerprints are still there. Definition I've really given of providence is this. Providence is his superintendence of all that happens in life. All that happens remains within God's control and divine purpose. Now, now as we we think about Providence, it can raise certain ramifications in our life that we need to apply. It certainly can raise some reactions. It maybe even raises some questions. And we're going to discuss those a little more as we move through our study of the book of Esther. But I want you to know, I am extremely excited that I get to spend time with you, not only this week, but Lord willing, the next four weeks. And and I have some life response for you today. What can you do after this little introduction we've had? Well, the life response is go and read through the book of Esther. And as you're reading through the book of Esther, I want you to look for God's providential hand. His providence was at work 2,500 years ago. And guess what? 2,500 years later, his providence is still at work. Remember that last little phrase from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11? These things that happened to them 
were written for our instruction. As we open up a book like the book of Esther, this was written for your instruction and for my instruction. Let's listen to what God has to say. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you that it is alive and powerful. It is exciting. It is life-changing. It is life-transforming. It will change the way that we think about life. And we thank you for your truth of providence that you're always, always, always at work. What a great joy that is to think about, to believe in, and to rest in. We look forward to our time in the book of Esther, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 